Here are some dispatches from another universe. We're headed up to Ashland this summer for the Oregon Beaumont Festival. Or how about this? The Public Theater presents Wit Without Money, the centerpiece of this summer's Fletcher in the Park. Or how about Coming This Fall, A Soldier for the Ladies, a production of the Royal Centlever Company. It's safe to say in the world where we all live, you've never heard anyone say any of those things. Ever wonder why? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast is called You That Survive and You That Sleep in Fame. So why is it that Shakespeare thrives 400 years after his death in a way that not one of his contemporaries can match? Why isn't there such a thing as the Folger Chapman Library or the Folger Marlowe Library? Partly it's because of Shakespeare's talent. He was a wonderfully gifted writer. But that's not the only reason. Shakespeare is what he is, thanks in no small part, to the devotion and persistence of two men, two king's men, members of Shakespeare's acting company, John Hemming and Henry Condell. Seven years after the death of their friend, Will Shakespeare, they decided to seek out and publish his plays into what, today, we call the first folio. We can't know what their true motivations were, but playwright Lauren Gunderson has decided that we're certainly allowed to guess. She's written a new play called The Book of Will that brings Hemming and Condell to vivid life, along with their families and everyone involved in gathering and creating the first folio. As we're recording this, The Book of Will is premiering at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, and Lauren stopped in recently to talk about her inspiration. She's interviewed by Neva Grant. The story of how the first folio got published is a really interesting one, right? But Mm -hmm. how did you know? How did you know and when did you know that it would make a good play? That is a fabulous question because great research doesn't always translate into a great play. And what occurred to me was this gobsmacking moment of realization that half the plays would have been gone had the folio not collected them and published them. Um, And some of them happen to be some of my favorite plays. And that, to me, felt full of stakes, which, of course, a good play needs. And then you look at the characters that are populating this world of 1619 to 1623, which is when my play is set. And, of course, you have uh, John Hemmings and Henry Condell, and you have Richard Burbage and Ben Johnson. And I posit that the women that accompanied these men, their wives and daughters and, and friends, were just as interesting as they were. So then you, now we have twice as many fabulous and interesting people. So that starts to make a good play. And then the real heart of it was when I realized that this can be one big metaphor for loss and legacy, doing something where we don't actually know what will become of this venture, this effort. But if you believe in it, and you believe not just in the effort itself, but they believed in the power of story and poetry. And of course, their work has journeyed across centuries to us right now, which I think would delight and surprise them. But also part of them probably would have known, yeah, the, these plays were, were, were that good, and, and, and we did a good thing in doing it. So all of that made for the ingredients for, I think, a really captivating beginning to a story. 
I know you're a practiced playwright, and, and it is your job, in essence, to, to take that kind of a story and put it on the page and make it and then make it live for an mm-hmm. audience. But as you're talking, I'm wondering if any part of you felt daunted as you started going into <laughs> this, like, oh, you know, this is, it's almost bigger than I thought it was going to be. How am I going to make it into a play? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the history of that time um, is complex and exciting and scary and dirty and wonderful, all of these these many things. Uh, the, the first step is trying to locate it in a very human setting, a place that can both be big enough to encapsulate all the drama I want to tell, but also intimate enough to make it so that real people can can live and breathe uh, in that space. So we center the play in a bar uh, that was uh, John Hemming's Tap House, which is connected to the Globe Theater. So it's a place that these guys know really well. It's a place that they're comfortable, you know, um, drinking and arguing uh, and dreaming. Before we get much further, you know, this is a story we've told a lot on this podcast, mm-hmm. The Making of the First Folio. But for newcomers, for people who, who perhaps aren't <laughs> familiar, let's just kind of go through it really uh, quickly. What what we do know, what's sort of written down in history, John Hemming and, and Henry Condell, two colleagues of Shakespeare. It's, it's set after Shakespeare dies. Mm-hmm. Um, and they take on this very ambitious uh, task to codify for the first time as much of his work as they can. And of course, we know what that work turns into, one of the, the most iconic books in all of Western literature, but they didn't. And uh, I think that's part of what I loved in telling this story, too, is we have such reverence for Shakespeare, as we should. But to them, he was their best friend. He was, of course, a great talent and a great voice of that era. But he was also Will, the guy that they saw flirt with the wrong people and get too drunk and, you know, mess up his lines because, of course, he was human. And and that's really when I realized that this story can be not just for the Shakespeare nerds among us, um, the historians, but for everybody, because I think Shakespeare doesn't need that much help in being revered. He needs help in being human. That's the real heart of this story and, frankly, what's playable. Because in, in this world, it can't be a history lesson and it can't be a literature class. It really has to be the emotional reason that these people did this almost impossible thing. Uh, it comes down to their loves uh, and their uh, friendships that that really provide the engine for this this effort. We have some clips from the play, um, which we're going to be sprinkling in as we talk. And this seems like a great opportunity to bring in the first one, which is this is John Hemming and, and Henry Condell. And they um, this is fairly early on uh, in the play where they're, they're suddenly realizing that they are perhaps the best people um, to gather these works together, Shakespeare's works together, and publish them into a book. So in, in this scene, it's early in the play, and John and Henry and John's daughter Alice are in the pub late at night after probably a few too many beers, and they're nostalgically reminiscing uh, about Will and the wonderful work that he gave them as players to do. And it occurs to Henry that we should just gather them, to g- gather the plays to keep them safe. And of course, that idea kind of snowballs into what will become a proposal to actually publish them. Those words are our life's work. Will's life, Burbage's life. If we don't find them, they die with us. We'll find the plays, Henry. What if we gather them? Collect them all. Not in a drawer somewhere, but in a, a, a book. Book? 
of Will's plays. Something simple, just something happens. So that we know they're safe. Have Crane pen them on fine paper, bind them, a collection of Will's plays for us. It would be nice to see them all again, wouldn't it? I don't think Will would mind. I think he'd love it. Aye, he would. But if we're going to collect them all in a book anyway, we could just publish them. No, we're publishers. Publish all the plays. Yes, yes, and not in those cheap quarters like those pirated versions. Our version, the real plays of William Shakespeare, set down as they were done by us. What they were doing wasn't really common practice at the time. I mean, people might have published a single play here or there. They would have published plays as they came out, but they didn't publish the accumulated work of one playwright. That wasn't typical. Yes. What they were doing was ambitious not only in sort of its size and scope, but also in the fact that they were even undertaking to publish the plays in the first place. Exactly. And I think that's what was so fun about this process and sharing this story with an audience is that there's a lot of assumptions. Uh, Many people would assume Shakespeare published his own plays or had a hand in them, and that's not true. Many people would assume that plays were, were like they are today, uh, a form of literature, and they were much more a form of pop culture, like television, as opposed to, you know, grand texts. And so all of these many senses of, of how hard publishing was, that then they didn't have half of the plays. Well, why didn't they? Didn't Shakespeare write for them? Where are the scripts? Um, all of these myths kind of come crashing down into this world. And you do realize that it wasn't just a lovely thing that these people did, but a nearly impossible thing that they managed to do to preserve this incredible work. And pretty much everything we've been talking about, by the way, is historical fact. I mean, there were these two men mm-hmm. who, who who came together to do this. In fact, one of them even had a daughter named Alice. You yes. wrote her into the play. <laughs> um, but that is really the scaffolding uh, on which you hang a work of fiction, which, of course, you have every right to do. You're the playwright. Yes. You get to do that. <laughs> so how did you walk that line? How did you then begin to build fictional conversations and personalities and happenings into this basic history. Yeah. I mean, all of the fiction has some root in a piece, a snippet of history that uh, I came across. And so I, it, it would it would kind of blossom as I realized the elements that I needed to tell a story that had good conflict um, and, you know, converging personalities and some stakes and uh, cathartic change by the end. Um, but all, all of it comes back to history. So uh, a lot of the women characters, you, you might assume that this play is full of white men, <laughs> but I, I specifically... And it is, yeah. There, there are a few. Um, but I really wanted to make sure that this play has uh, enough women in the way that Shakespeare's plays themselves are populated with really interesting, compelling, um, ambitious, powerful, funny women. And it thought I thought, well, of, of course, the world uh, of this play deserves that same treatment. Henry's been in a fog since we heard. Good friends mean bad days when the time comes. How is he gone? How could he be? He had more life in him than 20 men. Oh. I keep thinking he'll just walk back into the tap house. Surprise us all. <laughs> I think that'd be a plot twist he'd like. A life with actors, and I still fool myself that it's all entrances and no exits. Well, 
You can't have the comedies without the tragedies. Mm, yes, but I find I need the comedies the older I get. <laughs> You've always loved the comedies, Mum. <laughs> so finding little snippets of history, it's and uh, I believe it's Condal's will that he uh, acknowledges his wife as the executor of his will. And that was pretty rare back then to, to give a woman that kind of power. So I thought, well, he must have really respected her. He must have trusted her business sense. He, he must have really loved her. And so that extrapolation turned into the character of, of Elizabeth, who is this wonderful fireball of a wife that matches Henry's um, enthusiasm. Uh, Rebecca is John's wife, and Alice is his daughter, and these are two women who who really balance and complete this man. And so, you know, when when I, I, I the, try to imagine who are John and Henry to each other, because they're such a duo, they're such a pair, but they can't be the same personality. So I wanted to take what I knew about John, which is he it turned into the kind of manager of the Kingsmen and really stopped acting as far as, you know, again, some of the, the snippets of history we have suggest that, but he, he used to act. So that turned into a whole arc for him of having been a player and now is a manager. And there's some regret to that in him. Um, but he still has a sense of uh, rationality and reason to him that really makes him the counterbalance to who I created Henry to be, which is, again, full of enthusiasm vibrancy. He's a great actor. He he plays all the kind of Benvolio, Horatio roles. He's like the best friend <laughs> of, of the lead kind of people. And his kind of wild heart is, again, balanced to John's reason. Um, and it's that, that push and pull between them that drives the whole play, really. When you were doing research on these people, did you find yourself wishing you knew more about them from his from the history books? Or were you actually kind of pleased that you didn't know a whole lot? I mean, I know some <laughs> has been written about them, but I mean, from your point of view, is, is it just more fun to sort of color in you know, what we don't know? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, and I am exactly in the middle between wanting to know more and exactly happy with how much we do know. Even with what we do know, there are some elements of the historical record that I had to ignore or fudge a little bit to to make sure that the play was its strongest self. And so there's a, a sense that John is what it was called a, a grocer, which at, in our mind means one thing, and back then meant more of an administrative role with um, the importing and exporting of goods. And that didn't quite fit in this world. So that detail, even though I was grateful for anything that I could find, uh, I had to say, thank you so much. I will forget that. <laughs> we haven't um, talked about some of the other key characters in the play yet, and there's mm-hmm. so many. I mean, there's there's the publishers of the first folio, William Jaggard, his son Isaac, again, based entirely on real people yeah. uh, of the same names. There's uh, Ben Johnson, who is, of course, William Shakespeare's friend, his rival. And then there's the great uh, actor Richard Burbage, um, yes. who lived during that time. Uh, it is such is... a dream, these guys, to write for them. I mean, yeah. it really, they are incredibly huge personalities um, that it would take uh, a writer as good as Shakespeare to invent. But I didn't right. have to invent them. I just had to borrow them. And especially the entire element of uh, William Jaggard, the publisher, which the only 
uh, proof that we have of Shakespeare disliking anyone is disliking this man, who is a publisher of playbills and and, and other um, poetry and a lot of forgeries, including a lot of forgeries of William Shakespeare's work himself. And the yeah, fact he kind that of a, he was kind of a shady guy. He was right? totally shady. He's just a perfect villain, like even a Disney villain kind of. And and when he walks in, I mean, he's blind from syphilis, and he's old, and he's got all of this shady business history. Um, and of course, it could, again, Shakespeare is the only one who could have who could have written this in in such perfection as history presented itself to me. Uh, is he's the one that these two good-hearted men needed? It's the worst guy in England is who they needed to accomplish this task. If you want to do this, you cannot do it without me. We can and we will. We don't need your filthy business. Oh, what about all the plays to which you have no rights? You said poets don't have rights. <laughs> well, printers do. And lawyers and investors. And those are the ones you really don't want to f*** with. We'll get the rights from honest men who want the first and only authorised version of Shakespeare, as in the actual author. And how much of that work will there be without your friends Hamlet? Dear old Smethick owns it, and Romeo and Juliet gave me the rights to both. What about Much Ado? That's Astley's title. Already on board. The Richards, the Henrys, crowd favourites all, and all mine. And who will buy your collection without them? I wouldn't. Father, please. Let me be frank. I know you don't have the funds to do this. I do. I know you don't have the means to print. I do. You don't have the rights to all the plays, but I've already brought together a syndicate of owners who will invest in this Ferlio's production. Certainly you have money, rights, texts, presses, and nothing in your way but an old blind man asking to be friends. So, is there a deal to be made, gentlemen? And, and it makes it even more um, of a risk that they're taking because of this guy's shady business practices to, to work with him with this precious material. What if he absconds with it? What if he claims the rights and steals all of the plays? What if he does it poorly? You know, it, it, But it's their only chance. And that's actually how we, we end the act with them agreeing to this choice and, and hoping that they, they, they made the right one. This may be a good moment to ask you uh, just about the challenge, again, of writing a play about a process. I mean, Mm. you're not even necessarily writing a play about playwriting or about (laughs) the act of creating unless you count the fact that they're creating, you know, a book that never existed before. It's a little tricky. And yet you were able to build all of these sort of you know, these these reversals, these turning points, these um, and these big moments. Into the play. Thank you. Well, so much of that is, again, true. There were moment after moment where the printing had to be stopped. There wasn't enough money. So borrowing some of that. But again, it, it can't be... The question of the play can't be, will they publish the first folio? Because we all know that they do. So that isn't the stakes um, uh, of the play. The stakes are both heart and what we as future consumers of this beautiful work know, what we know what's at stake because we know what these plays mean to us and, and have meant for the past several several centuries. Um, but again, uh, a play, which of course Shakespeare's work does this over and over when he borrows from history, 
It can't be about what actually happened. It has to be about the heart uh, and the soul of the people in the middle of what is happening and their own personal, intimate um, losses and challenges and triumphs. And so that that's really where I had to dig in deepest and pull in myself and and my past and and frankly some of the the history of the actors I was working with um, in the development of the play, asking them what is it like to stand on a stage and say these words. What is it like to be an actor? What is it like to be an actor um, and be the last one of your friends um, that perhaps you started a theater company like Shakespeare, John and Henry did, and then you end up decades later and you're the only ones left? What are the memories of those early plays to you? How did their answers inform what you wrote? Well, it, it, there's a scene in Act Two where John and Henry... It's, it's a kind of reminiscence, but from a place of, of sorrow, searching for meaning. And c- the question is, what's the point of mm. doing these plays, of doing theater, of dressing up in costumes and being fake people? And Henry gets to say, because it's not actually fake. It's fiction, but it's not fake. And the feelings are real. And isn't it magic that we get to say them and invoke them every time we go on stage? We give an entire emotional journey to the audience and they come with us. They lean into it. And isn't that the point of all of this? Um, You know, you don't get to keep a performance and you don't get to keep a life. And in some way, those conversations with the actors that I was working with reminded me that that's the constant conversation that all actors throughout time have had. You you'd actually don't get to keep your work. But that has frankly um, prepared me as uh, the woman I am with loss that I've met as I've gotten older and older. I've unintentionally trained myself in the temporality of things. And it doesn't lessen their meaning and the memory of them and the power of them. Um, but it does mean that we have to be prepared to lose and learn and keep going. You know, what you're just saying makes me think about the character Ralph Crane, Mm -hmm. who's um, Shakespeare's Scrivener, his scribe. Um, The guy writes down all the lines, and he was based on a real guy. Yes. And um, there's a lovely... um, uh, a moment in the play where where we learn that he almost secretly was kind of, I guess, what holding on to the manuscripts as as kind of as an act of preservation and, and an act of love. Yes, yeah, that's one where I um, had to read into the history slash make it up a little bit. <laughs> but the idea that that Crane was the person who Shakespeare would give his manuscripts to. And he would cleanly write them so that all the actors would have their individual parts. And there would be a prompt book for what amounts to the stage manager. And he would be the one who would take the actual paper that Shakespeare wrote on and and disseminate it in, into the cast so that the work could be done. And I wondered, who was that guy? Yeah. And if Shakespeare yeah. is who we think he is, and, and I imagine he's you know, uh, a combination of just the best guy you ever met and a little bit of a tortured artist and a little bit of a romantic and <laughs> and all of that. But I feel like he would be good to Ralph Crane. And so part of the emotional reason for that uh, character and plot element is that Shakespeare was the only guy in The Kingsman who actually talked to Ralph Crane instead of demanding him 
you know, accomplish tasks as quickly as possible for them. Shakespeare mm-hmm. said, how's your day? You know, and uh, and so Ralph Crane loved him for it and and not only um, loved Wait, him, we know, but loved the we actually know this or, or this is you imagine completely invented. Yeah, okay. <laughs> But the idea sure. of the people who touched his work and knew him as a person uh, in in this version, Shakespeare is a great guy. And, yeah. you know, he's not the prince of all men, but he is somebody who these people would be loyal to and, and would follow in all of his crazy ideas of well let's let's write you know this next wild play that nobody has imagined before and I imagined that that uh, inspiring that kind of devotion would have led Crane to perhaps um, make extra copies of his favorite plays for himself and that could be one of the the reasons that we have some of the plays that we didn't have that that weren't published in in Corto at the time that they could have added to the folio. You know, I just want to mention that there's a lot of humor in this play. I mean, not that I've seen it, but just on the page, it's there's a lot of funny moments oh, in good. it. And, and one of the really funny moments comes, and we can hear a bit of this scene, is when uh, Ralph Crane, uh, Shakespeare's scribe at one point, is going back and forth uh, with one of the publishers of the first folio, Isaac Jaggard. And they get into this really funny dialogue about a play that, that William Shakespeare may or may not have written called Love's Labors One. What about Love's Labors One? Uh, uh, it's lost. I know, but we have Love's Labors Lost. Where's Love's Labors One? No, I'm saying it's lost. I know, but he also wrote one. No, it's lost. There are two plays, man. And one of them is gone. We can't find it. One is lost. All we have is lost because we lost one. All right? All right. <laughs> All right. What I love about this is that it... it <laughs> This thing is so reminiscent of, you know, that classic Abbott and Costello routine, who's on first. Yes. Um, and you must, have, you must have just had so much fun writing this and imagining. Oh, it was the best. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do remember bolting up in the middle of the night with that idea and yeah. running to some paper to, to, to write that one down. <laughs> I'm pretty proud of that, that moment. No, it's a lot of fun. And, and there are a lot of moments like that. I mean, you give Richard Burbage, you know, the great Shakespearean oh, yeah. actor who I sort of imagine is a kind of false stuff. Yes. Um, you uh, give him a lot of funny lines as well. well. And similarly, I think that's what Shakespeare does. I, as a kid, that's who I read. And so much of learning the dramatic form came from, as a lot of playwrights do, came from Shakespeare. And he is never one to have a play without a clown or to have some turn of phrase that may not be laugh out loud funny, but but makes you think, makes you giggle, makes you think, oh, isn't that clever? And trying to fill a play that even would be classified as a, as a drama with that levity, because that's life, right? That's That's the human experience. There's a very poignant end to your play when Heming and Condal take the finished folio to Shakespeare's widow. What brings you here, good sirs? We wanted you to see, to be the first to see his work. Whose work? Wills. We gathered his plays and printed them. Printed? All of them? Yes. Well, Henry. I hope you didn't like Pericles. We'll put it in a later printing, all right? Your husband's words meant the world to us. And we wanted you to be the first to see them. To see that the life you let him live was lived a thousand times. That's it there? Yes, my lady. You know, from the very beginning, that's how I knew I wanted to end the play. Um, Partly because there's 
so much strange academic animosity to Anne Hathaway in some way that thinking that she got in Will's way or tricked him into marriage or all of this business. And I just wanted to meet a strong woman at the end who, if we love Shakespeare, we should think that he would be able to choose a woman of merit. And to, to meet her at the end and to, to have them give her the book so she can see what all this amounted to. And I, I double-checked the history, and it is, in fact, possible that she would have seen an early version. Do we know that she knew it was being codified? I, have, I don't think we have any uh, proof of that that I know of. But we knew that Stratford wasn't that far away and that they had been there before. Um, so it, in my version, it's, it's a moment of them realizing that Will was a husband and the wife deserves uh, some credit to the husband's success. The other element of this is let's presume that Anne never saw a play that he wrote. Um, And here she is with these two great actors and she just asks quite simply, start reading them to me. They're plays, aren't they? Why why don't I got, I'm surrounded by actors. Why don't you read them? And that simple moment of saying, oh, right, that's the whole point of this is to lift these words off of the page that we worked so hard to put them on and share them with the world and breathe into them and be in them in the way that great actors lift that word into the air and into our hearts. Right. And there's that point earlier in the play where, where John Hemming addresses that very thing, and he talks about our need for story and our need to keep returning to, to even hear the same stories over and over again. I mean, we're, we're just, we're almost wired to want to do that. And I guess really what the play's all about is not just our need for stories, but our need to make sure they're, they're preserved. Absolutely. That's exactly, that's exactly it. I think it's a core fundamental driver for human beings all over the world. And it is in some ways curious that we come to fiction instead of fact over and over again. Fiction gives us something so specific. And part of it is, I think, a sense of coherence in the chaos of normal life, an end point of a story, which means um, a a, a point of meaning, uh, which life doesn't really end in the way that a play ends and that that allows us to to pause and reflect and and gather what we've learned but specifically for theater it asks us to gather together and there's a few moments in the play where they have been met with sorrows and so they they are met with that need to go to some somewhere when you're hit with that kind of pain, what do you do? What do I need? Where do I go? And they go to the theater, this empty stage, uh, the Globe Theater at night. Why are they there? What, what do they hope to get? And in that moment, it reminds me that theater is church to a lot of people, and it certainly is to me. I feel complete and I'm able to question. I'm able to, to feel the kind of depth and height of the human experience in the theater and to find comfort and relief. I can find a common experience with characters who are, are going through it, something that I'm going through or articulating something I can't quite articulate. You know, so it's, it's more than entertainment. It always has been. It is um, an engine to our humanity as something we come to again and again. 
And I, I like the idea that when we see John and Henry on that empty stage at the Globe in Act Two, they actually look out at this modern audience hundreds and hundreds of years later. And there's a moment where I hope the audience feels that they are in that world with John and Henry and all of those characters in the 1600s, that theater does this magical time-traveling thing that it does sometimes. And in that scene, in that moment, we are in their time sitting in the audience, and they are somehow in ours at the exact same moment. And that, that I think, is what we come to story for, is this commonality of uh, the human beings are always human beings, no matter when they are, no matter where they are. And this play tries to articulate that and offer that shared experience to, uh, to audiences then and now. Lauren, thanks so much for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. This was such fun and such an honor. Thank you. Playwright Lauren Gunderson is the author of the new play, The Book of Will, which had its world premiere on January 13, 2017, at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. She was interviewed by Neva Grant. You That Survive and You That Sleep in Fame was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Hope Grandin at Denver Center for the Performing Arts, Melissa Marquis at NPR in Washington, and Monte Carlos, Amanda Font, and Katie McMurrin at Station KQED in San Francisco. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.